RPP, it's getting to that fun time of the year again. we got football coming back, but more importantly for us, and on this podcast, it's a lot of fun baseball time. So getting into post-All-Star break, we obviously had the trade deadline that went down. A couple of weeks ago, we got the draft. we got to recap uh, a little bit, but just in general, fun time to be a baseball fan. Yeah, definitely. And with the, the trade deadline, it's been it goes down as one of the most exciting of all times that we keep hearing with all the big moves. Uh, you know, you hear a lot about the Cubs, the Nationals moving some big pieces, but just kind of crazy to see some of these guys in a different jersey for the first few games with, you know, Scherzer, Turner, Bryant, Baez. It's just crazy, man. But yeah, what a what a crazy time for baseball. Yeah, no doubt. And I felt like I just kept refreshing the timeline. It's like, oh, 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 oh. And every every two minutes, a new guy went. And uh, it was fun to see. You know, at some point, I imagine those guys, you could see them get emotional uh, with when they got the news. And it makes sense. I mean, that's where they've been for so long. But, you know, I wonder if, you know, some of those guys that could have gotten a little stale in a fresh environment might have helped them. Obviously, we all saw what they did on their first couple at-bats, uh, talking about the Cubs uh, kind of trio that left them. Uh, that was another kind of unprecedented thing, but you don't think about it, but I mean, you, you throw in Schwarber into that mix and you throw in Jock Peterson. I mean, it's like their kind of core group is all kind of gone now and it'll be interesting to see what they do. And you just, it'll be fun to kind of see what they do with their new environments. Yeah, definitely. You think of like the Cubs historical franchise and the world series, they just, you know, previously won not too long ago. I mean, when you think about that, you think about Rizzo and Bryant, those type of guys kind of lead the big drought of you know 100 years without a world series of one of the most popular teams of historic franchise yeah i think you're right Seth. it was interesting you know you see video of rizzo you know walking the track taking pictures with the ivy uh when you start to see that yeah it really sets in that wow you know these guys we've known as cubs or whatever nationals you know to not be in in a couple days is kind of wild um but yeah as as we see a bunch of them get home runs in their first game uh it was definitely exciting yeah, BP, it makes sense, too, with a lot of the guys that are leaving. One of the things I, I kind of wonder and question is that you get into these routines, baseball being such a heavily like routine and tradition uh, and different thing. You got some of the guys that moved are actually some of our pro set guys. So you guys like Chris Bryan, who we know uses the device a ton, not only a hitting user, but also a Repsoto MLM user. So, you know, he's getting some swings out in California. So I'm sure he's happy about that. Um, but also guys like Kimbrell and other guys that are using the uh, the pitching device, going from one organization to another, sometimes there's different resources available. Some are more heavy Rapsodo users than others. Uh, we have a great relationship with the Cubs, so we know all those guys leaving that organization are going to be well taken care of in that sense. And it's just interesting for those guys personally as they go into, you know, trying to find themselves and reestablish themselves in the orgs as they do that for within a player development mindset and also data-driven, uh, kind of bringing it back to Rapsodo. It'll be interesting how that sort of changes some of their habits, uh, routines, and we'll see if they maybe reach out to us uh, for their own personal Rapsodo monitors like so many guys have if they ever go to an org that isn't quite as stacked as, as what they're used to. You know, for today's podcast, another exciting thing now is, you know, kind of that transition for players as they get done, if they're playing, you know, summer ball and heading into uh, their regiments, you know, for, for weightlifting and throwing programs and bat speed programs. A really good day to jump on, you know, one of the best, Kevin Poppy. Um, and wanted to give a quick shout out to some of the guys at Coastal Carolina uh, coming by uh, the Rapsodo office, being able to sit down and talk some of the reports, uh, talk the data with some of the, their pitching staff. Uh, so that was a really cool opportunity here, just uh, something new at Rapsodo. Yeah, for sure. It's always a welcome addition and sight to have people come into the office at our previous complex. Uh, we would have pro guys and even some college players come in all the time. Uh, now that we're getting this new office kind of set up, it was cool to have some guys come in. I know, VP, you spent some time with them, but really cool thing that the uh, 
that the guys down at Coastal Carolina are doing. They sent their entire pitching staff up to P3, um, which is right here in St. Louis, a really high-level arm. I don't even know how you call it, Brian. I mean, they're not an academy. Uh, they really are like a player development shop. I mean, this is where guys go in the offseason to come and get better and train. It's a really – you'd almost think of it like a driveline um, sort of place. It's on that level uh, for sure, and we have a great relationship with those guys here in St. Louis. So they sent their entire staff up here. A couple of the guys were really interested in learning the numbers a little bit more, came down. You got to talk shop with them a little bit. I know that that's exciting as well. Uh, you know, how'd that go? What were some of those questions like? I'm curious for guys that are, you know, obviously playing at that level. Uh, you know, what, what all did you guys get into and what'd you cover? Yeah, it was an awesome experience. Those guys that, you know, came into the office were high level arms. Uh, and it's really neat. One of the first thing we talked about was, you know, normally in college, you get sent to play summer ball somewhere in um, like the, the Cape or the Prospect League or the Northwoods or, you know, somewhere like that. Um, but their team put a big focus on just the training. Uh, and as you said, P3, they you know, one of the best at it. So up here, one of the first things we discussed was just that what's it like not getting innings, but rather working on their craft. Um, so they're excited that all their bullpens are being recorded by Rapsodo. Um, so that they can really dive into that off-season development plan. And so a player can say, hey, maybe my curveball could use a little work, maybe my slider, maybe my efficiency on my fastball. Um, but, yeah, it was a lot of fun because we did a re uh, we broke down the report for every single player. Um, and as we all know, every single arm is different. We talk lefties, righties, different arm slots, uh, and really just a deep dive into the data and uh, really, really need to just be able to sit down for a couple hours and those players be able to come out of that with understanding every metric that, that Rapsodo provides and why each one's important. And by just kind of making a note here and there on maybe a place that they could, um, you know, make their curveball more efficient, for example, to get some more downward break, if that's the outcome they're looking for. Um, so we just talked about different players and, um, and, and, you know, how they can just make their craft better on just, you know, paying attention to all the numbers. Yeah, I, I think that's so cool. And honestly, I'm proud of like us being able to be a little bit a part of that movement. But you got guys that are in college seeking out, you know, kind of wisdom and help of like, how do I get better? They're studying the craft. They're trying to, you know, do what they can to understand the numbers and uh, and get better. I'm sure they'll take that with them back then to the university and be able to you know make other guys better, too. So it's really cool uh, for us to be a part of that. You know, speaking of player development and, and doing it with high level guys, you know, it's a wonderful transition back to who you mentioned earlier with our guest this week, Kevin Poppy. We got an opportunity to sit down with him and talk about a lot of things, but obviously he works with a lot of high level, not only pitchers, but also hitters, uh, a lot of which got drafted. Some guys that are getting, uh, you know, that are currently playing in pro ball, some guys that are looking to get opportunities in pro ball. So really unique perspective to talk about the different types of player development the guys go through either pre-draft or pre-free agency, whatever that work looks like. And then we also got into a really interesting topic uh, on the sticky stuff, right? I mean, that's what's going around. We talked about it last week when we had Kevin Pilar on, but he was able to host a journalist that came in and do kind of a trial and error and saw the advantages of spider tech can give with a guy who's, you know, for all intents and purposes, kind of a novice at pitching. And he even saw, you know, three to 400 uh, RPM um, spike. So we're going to get into that. And Kevin can kind of tell that story a little bit. And he offers a very unique perspective of a guy that trains a lot of athletes that knows that this is not an, you know, an uncommon thing in the game. And it's a pretty widespread, uh, you know, activity. So it's it's cool to get his perspective. And he's a guy that we've known for a long time. So we're excited to have him on the Rapsodo Baseball Podcast. Kevin Poppy owner of DST Training down in Houston. Kevin, appreciate you joining us, man. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here and talk talk some baseball. 
Absolutely. And we got connected, uh, what I guess is several years ago now, uh, when Rapsodo was really in its infancy. We had the 1.0 unit. I got to come down and check out you guys' facility, which is located just in a beautiful spot. And we got to hook up uh, and give a demo. That feels like a lifetime ago and also just the other day. So I appreciate you joining us. I'm really glad to have this connection and relationship over the last few years. Oh, yeah. I appreciate it, too. I mean, it's it does seem like a lifetime. It wasn't off that awful long ago in the grand scheme of things, but uh, yeah. a lot of change between uh, now and then. Yeah, absolutely. We went from the ground, up in the air, down to the ground, and added a hitting unit and everything else in between. So uh, it's been pretty fun. So obviously along the way, uh, so BP was our, our second guy kind of uh, that, that came in into the office once we got things rolling. I think maybe at the time when I came down, it might have just been me. I don't know who all was even on the team. Uh, yeah. back then but obviously we're excited to get going we have a, a pretty cool lineup of stuff we want to get into uh, and talk about today awesome let's do it good deal uh, you know clearly this is a baseball podcast and uh you know we'd be remiss if we didn't get into a little bit of draft talk uh here at Rapsodo, one of our favorite times of the year us being a player development tool it's always so kind of encouraging and, and fun for us to see the guys that we know train with it to get this sort of reward of all the hard work uh, and I imagine that's something even more so personal to you because you're physically in person working with these kids uh, all the time. So, man, just want to talk a little bit about that. I know you guys had several people get picked up. Uh, so congrats to that. And then, you know, what's that process like for you as a trainer and coach? Uh, you know, I think um, I think that that kind of gets misconstrued a lot of times by uh, what it really means to a coach um, for one of their players to be drafted. So. Um, a lot of the a lot of players that I did um, congratulate have either trained with us in the past or currently training with us. Um, might be at a different facility than I'm at, but they're all part of this uh, the family. You know, there's everyone you spend any sort of time with and have a relationship with um, impacts your life, and so um, we like to think we do have that impact with them as well. But they certainly do on us. So. When they're able to achieve their dreams, I mean, you know, the coaching life, whether it's baseball, strength, conditioning, football, basketball, doesn't matter, um, is, is not like the easiest thing in the world. There's a lot of responsibility um, to be good mentors to young men and women. And, and um, there, there's not a lot of um, praise necessarily. And so a lot of times I think what happens or, or and there's not a huge financial pay, payoff either that's at the end of the road necessarily. So um, I think a lot of times people perceive it as we're trying to hype ourselves up by congratulating guys that we've worked with or have or do currently work with. And really what it is, is it's just like you see these guys go through the hard times, go through the struggles, go through people telling them they're never going to make it, they're not good enough. And then you see them come up out on the other end and it's like a weight is lifted a gaze removed in front of them it's just something really um really rewarding to see somebody work so hard and achieve their dreams and you know when they when they thank you for being a small part of that process it's just it, it means the world to us as coaches and and so that i mean that's really what that experience is like it's just it's it's the reason we stay into coaching you know because you know you could make more money in a different industry you could give more recognition, doing something else, but really seeing somebody work really hard to accomplish something and it actually paying off means that much more in those situations, especially when the, the masses, it doesn't work out for. And so you see a lot of disappointment as well. So those, those bright times are, 
are very, uh, very special to us as coaches. Yeah, absolutely, man. And we uh, we realized, you know, the last couple of years was a grind for you guys as coaches and players. Um, so it's so exciting that we we're back to more of a normal draft and these guys got all the rounds and, uh, you know, it was more of a normal year. Um, and one thing we've been talking about a lot lately was the combine, how that was exciting for the game of baseball, you know, moving kind of like what football does and kind of more of that, you know, on TV combine for these players. I'm curious, you know, we haven't talked about it, but did you have any guys make it out that way for the combine and carry? Yeah, so we actually had two guys go out there. Um, one was a guy uh, from Alabama named Dylan Smith. And um, then Jaden Hill went out just to uh, talk to talk to teams, let them know that he's on a good rehab track. And um, it, from what I hear, it was a really good experience. Uh, they got a lot of FaceTime uh, for guys that performed well on those tests for the college guys. Um, they got to, you know, really show – some metrics that don't necessarily show up on the field. And um, from the high school size, like you get it, the teams get a chance to really see what these kids do against upper level con uh, contests. So it's cool to see that, that, that that's a developing um, part of the, the draft process now. I think going through, um, you know, one of the things that I'm curious about for you that we, we talk to a lot of pro athletes and you have, uh, I know guys that are there that are looking to get signed that are doing that. So you get to see kind of like both worlds, right? The the guys that are either looking to get a college scholarship, the guys that are looking to get drafted, and then the guys that are looking to get signed. And they're very different uh, kind of stages of a career uh, with that. When you talk about leading up to the draft, do you equate that pretty similar from a program you put a guy through leading up to free agency and then trying to get picked up? Is that a similar process or is that different? Um. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll more talk through, I've never thought about it as like a comparison, um, but I, I can talk through a little bit about like what goes into the draft prep process. Um, so for the most part with a draft prep is the, it's just the middle of a longer season for some of these guys. I shouldn't say middle, they, they still have a little bit left to play. Some of them, some of them are just going to go out and throw some bullpens and things like that. Um, so it's really just a chance for us to, to it's more of like a pit stop toward the end of a race. We get we get to fine tune a couple of things that um, maybe started going out of whack in season, whether that's range of motion or or strength or body composition. We get to kind of like tune it up just a little bit more for this final push and to get us into the off season. Um, now Dylan, one of the ones that actually went out and performed in the combine, was a little different because we wanted to teach him. Um, the technical side of some of the tests. So I knew they were going to be doing the force play jumps and, you know, most people aren't very comfortable holding their hands on their hips and jumping. So things like that, we're just like coaching them through the test. What are they going to look for? What, what means it's good? What, um, what might be a negative? What do you want to show? What don't you want to show? That sort of thing. Um, but for like leading up to free agency for free agency, it's really just, it's a, it's another, it's another off season. So we had a, a guy going into free agency this last year, obviously. And um, uh, it was really just normal, except that we had a lot less training time to work with. So there was actually a lot more that we were trying to throw, um, throw at him because we, you know, he's traveling around talking to different teams and, um, and things like that. And then, and just in the, in this COVID post COVID environment, there's other things that can get thrown off as well with travel. And so it's really free agency. We just approach like another off season. I understand that there's probably some hesitancy from some sides to 
You want to make sure you're not going out there and getting a guy hurt in an offseason. Um, however, we, we're probably not going to introduce something that's new and, and abnormally risky during those times, but we'll, we'll pretty much keep them on the, what their process has been. And um, we, we want them to go out. At the end of the day, we want them to go out and perform when it comes time to perform. And so that's what we're trying to prep them to do, and it just means we have less time for the most part. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense with the uh, the arm care side of things. Like, I'm sure that's a huge challenge for someone like yourself that, you know, works with all those athletes to where these guys didn't see a live hitter for some of them over a year, which in their lives has never been the case. They have their on-ramping, whatever you're doing with underload, overload, if you do that, and all the weight room stuff, and then just all these guys got that on, just paused, and then they've got to go to something like the combine or maybe summer ball starting back up. That's something we talked with Baseball America about on last week's episode. Uh, just everything was kind of on pause and then they all just kind of had to in pitchers, you know, hopefully they got some time to do some pitch design, get their arm back to healthy. Uh, but the whole injury aspect is really interesting uh, on the pitching side of just how much stress that already is on the body. It's, it, it was kind of a, that was one of the hardest parts to navigate about this past year from the, especially the professional side, because college played a little bit and then, you know, they got into some summer ball, uh, but the minor league players for the most part, they didn't have anything. Like there was nowhere to go. They can't play in non-sanctioned games without risk of losing their losing their jobs. So, I mean, people can say, yeah, they should be throwing bullpens, they should be throwing live, but you're never going to simulate the intensity of a game in that way. And so it's about how, with some of these young guys, especially lower levels that are big prospects, if they're trying to ramp innings up, you can't miss a year of development just – because they won't let you progress until we build up innings over the next several years. So it's a matter of trying to simulate innings, but try to simulate some of those intensities as well. And that was, that was a really hard thing to juggle. Um, it just, it, it's, it was completely unprecedented. And um, it was just a, a, a new exercise in trying to, um, in trying to figure out what the best process would be for each individual or what the team wanted them to do. Yeah, I think in the same way, you know, there's an argument when you have like younger youth kids that are either doing summer ball uh, and the argument of like, well, don't play that. You should just train and develop and do that. This is sort of like a forced exercise on people like, well, what happens if those guys aren't playing? And a lot of the guys that weren't playing are guys that teams and organizations would like them to develop in some capacity, whatever that is, right? Either throw hard or develop another pitch or, you know, hit certain pitches better, whatever that was. I'm curious on your perspective because you got to work with these guys. It was a forced thing that came into it, but did you see development improve in the sense of, you know, these guys had more time in the weight room, more time to develop this, more time to pitch design and, you know, more than they've ever had in their lives. Oh, absolutely. You saw that a lot. Um, there, and that's, that's been apparent this season. You see these um, guys that weren't prospects that jump on the prospect list. You see um, um, guys that, you know, I, I can point to three or four guys that, that worked with us. Um, one of them being a, a guy that got a little bit of recognition this year named Hayden Wisniewski uh, with the Yankees. Uh, he went from a non-prospect. I mean, he was a pretty high pick, a six-round pick. But he wasn't on a prospect list to missing a season and jumping onto a prospect list uh, based on some of the development he had where, uh, you know, he was a low to mid-90s guy and now he's – more sitting and bumping upper 90s with a lot of onside run and a big slider. And a lot of that was due to the time he was able to develop. He wasn't, didn't have a very strong lower half and we really attacked that. And then 
he had some mechanical inefficiencies, especially in the lower half um, where he was leaking power. And we were able to target that after we got some strength built up and it was probably stemming from a lack of strength originally. And then we had to help repattern that. And uh, I mean, he's one, Ryan Hendricks is another, Alex Lang, they all jumped up in velocity pretty significantly. Um, and so you saw people that took advantage of it. And then it's also apparent that you saw people that didn't take advantage of the downtime and either just, you know, played it safe and um, or say quote unquote safe and um, didn't really make much progress or actually fell behind some of these guys that really pushed their game to the next level. You can see it as an opportunity or a, or a burden. The burden was that you're not going to play and that sucks and we're minor leaguers, but the uh, opportunity was you've never had this much time to actually focus on aspects of your game before. And now you have a chance to do it. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, obviously there's a lot of different type of athletes in your building. Uh, this is a little bit out of left field and something we haven't talked about before, but I was at a meeting before this that went a little bit long. We were literally talking about the NIL stuff uh, at college. You know, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, you get to work with these guys in one way, you know, it's fantastic. They get to make a little bit of money off of it, which is, which is great. And a lot of these guys, especially knowing that they're, you know, the ultimate goal is to go play pro ball and a lot of them are not going to get big bonuses. So getting money before they get there is a, is always a perk. And with that, any thoughts on, on that process and that being uh, obviously made available now? I mean, I think it's a, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm more looking at it as an observer. I've had a couple athletes talk to me about it and just sort of get, have questions or um, talk about what they're trying to do on their end. But um, it's, it's a cool, it's a cool experiment. Um, you know, it's a, it's a completely new market. So it's, it's cool, cool to see what companies are getting involved um, and trying to um, work with athletes. And it's cool seeing athletes kind of trying to learn business and which is super important for these young athletes. Like a lot of them are going to get slapped down because they just don't understand exchange value very well. It's like, well, all right, so what, what as a company, what I, I give you this, what do you get, what do you give in return in value as opposed to just like being a name that we have, like that doesn't really bring a ton of value. And so it's going to be cool because a lot of these um, college athletes are going to learn economics a little bit. There's a, re a real life lesson in economics and it's going to help them for when they do take the next step or go into the real world and they're going to have a, a good little foundation. That's, that's my perspective. I don't, I don't have any real perspective on the ins and outs of the, the current situation though. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, something you don't really think about, though, is the ancillary benefit of a guy that's not going to play at the next level, just got a real world. I mean, like, screw an internship. Like, he started his own business uh, of being himself and, like, building a brand. And you know, it's a kind of a cool opportunity. But uh, all right. Well, the next thing, one of the big things we definitely want to talk about with you, uh, specifically for those that haven't seen it, you were able to be a part of this kind of case study, if you will, uh, with, with the reporter. They came into the office uh, and wanted to try out sticky substances to see what that could do to affect spin rate. Uh, we got to see that. We've seen that happen at a couple other uh, academies. We are a guy that we wanted to reach out to and, and just kind of see. We've done a similar test in our office. We've seen it happen in, in, in a lot of uh, part of a lot of discussions with it. I'm curious, how did that come up? And then, you know, anything interesting that you found from that day in particular? So I've had a decent relationship with the reporter's name is Ari Alexander. Um, and I've had a decent relationship with him over the past couple of years with some different athletes and different stories. Um, I'm trying to remember how exactly it originally came up other than, you know, he, he sent me a message, knew I had a rap soto was wondering if he could 
he, he had seen it online and wanted if he wanted to know if he could come video it at our facility. And that's how we did. Um, the results were pretty much what we would expect. Like they were a little inconsistent on the spins because it's not a competitive baseball player. So there's a lot more variables than a, than a professional baseball player would be, but essentially his grip improved when he added any sort of sticky, sticky substance, whether that's rosin, sunscreen rosin. And then as we moved up the chain of just rosin to sunscreen rosin, to pine tar, to spider tack, um, you saw the spin rates steadily increase and, and uh, command actually got a little bit better and then went back away, um, got a lot worse. But uh, that was pretty much what we did. It was a, it was a fun little experiment. And, I mean, it was good because I think a, a lot of everyday fans don't really understand the dynamics at play with, with sticky stuff and not all of it's created equal and some of it has different benefits than others. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we, we really enjoyed the video and kind of seeing that article play out. As Seth alluded to, we've kind of, we're obviously here, here in the, the rap soda space, so we can do similar things with the substances and kind of what we hear. Um, but one thing I thought was so interesting from that was that, as you saw, as like you said, not a competitive pitcher at the time, but as adding rosin, rosin and sunscreen, I it was reading, seeing that, yeah, the grip was a little bit better, but still not seeing like crazy RPM um, increases until the spider tech, which obviously one of the hottest topics in sports right now and in baseball with, uh, you know, every pitcher being checked between innings. Um, but then that's where I read that where you guys saw it with Ari that uh, went 300 RPM plus right after he put the, the spider tech on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, I mean, that was pretty much it, right. was the, uh, that at a certain point, like, yeah, there's some subtle increases in RPMs as we move up. Um, but the main is the main uh, point of it is, it's helping him know where the ball is going to feel like he can really spin it and not get a slip out of his hand, which has been the argument for the years, right? But then right. we get into the more recent years and spider tech, spider tech is just the whipping boy, right? Like we know that there's, I could name 10 brands right now that people have been using. Um, and it's just, I mean, it, it, it goes to a point where it ends up just being a competitive advantage. It's actually no longer helping you control a pitch. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned, Kevin, like the, that maybe a lot of people don't realize what all goes on with that. Um, one thing I think that like the common fan is uh, if you haven't had your hand on an MLB baseball, how different the seams are. You know, it's back when you played high school ball, college ball, you get your thumb cut throwing a four seamer throughout the game, depending on how you threw the ball or maybe on the finger. But those uh, those MLB balls kind of more like that cue ball and you're playing in the middle of the heat. Uh Harder to hold, hold on to. I know that's an interesting point with it too. Is you know guys are doing anything they can to get a grip on that ball when you're really not relying on a seam between the fingers to get leverage on. So that's where a substance obviously helps out quite a bit uh, when an MLB ball is so much different. Right, and I think you know that's a really good point because even Ari, who's a sports reporter, who's been covering the Astros and doing different things, as soon as I toss him a MLB pearl, he grips it and feels he's like, "There's no seams on this thing." Like just like dead serious to straight faced. And I'm like, no, there's not. And, you know, I think this is a, a part of the nuance of the discussion that people don't quite understand is that people have been using sticky substances, just, you know, winking a nod. Nobody, nobody's going to check them. You see the brown patches on the back of the hat, on the, on the bill of the hat. They've been using them for, for since baseball has been around and it's gotten progressively more and more um, egregious, but you've also seen the ball be adjusted over the years to where, because it didn't really matter because yeah, these guys can get a grip. They got stuff on their fingers and um, 
But if it gets hit, now we want it to go a little further. So it's tighter, lower seams, ball's going to go faster, further. And now you all of a sudden, you just take away the, the thing that was able to make them grip it and say, well, you know, now it's cheating. Well, it's been cheating this whole time, but the ball's completely different than the last time everyone had no stick, right? Or didn't have this level of stick. It's a completely different ball. So there's a huge adjustment process. And like you said, it, it, the dynamics of just being able to use the seams um, to get some leverage completely change how, how the ball is going to come out of the hand. Yeah, I think in general in life, everything can kind of boil down to like just everything in moderation, right? Like when it was purely using the substance to get a better grip, I don't think any hitters would ever have a a grip. That's why rosin was legal. That's why you can dip your hand on the bag. You can come back, you wipe the sweat off, and it did give you an advantage to grip the ball better. That's purely why it was out there on the field to do that. And, you know, unfortunately, like anything, there's going to be – uh, you know, if it's an advantage, someone's going to find out a way to exploit it until you tell them not to. Uh, but that is an interesting side of things, too, from the hitter side uh, and the hitter's perspective. I don't think a lot of guys had a lot of gripe uh, with guys just trying to command the ball, uh, in a sense, because they don't want to get nailed with a 100-mile-an-hour pitch either. I think that they have a, a gripe with somebody throwing up a pitch that's just not, like, physically possible. Uh, maybe maybe where the, where the real discussion maybe came to play. Uh, I, I know that we get into the weeds a little bit. Um, with, with this sometimes and we get a little nerdy uh, on our talk, but I know that um, really get into why does it help? Obviously having sticky stuff on your fingers, you see guys lift the fingers, try to get a little bit better grip, but what's actually happening. And I know that, um, you know, I, I had actually seen Bauer talk about this. I don't know how long ago, but the, you know, really get into the technical reason of what's happening for the, the listeners of the everyday fan. What we're talking about is the ability for your fingers to create more spin because they're sticky. When you think of throwing the ball harder like a projectile, you really want to have force behind the ball that pushes it to create the momentum that creates basically the velocity, right? When we're talking about spin, the fingers are actually going to be sticky. So as the ball is coming out of your fingers, not only is it creating velocity, but it's also going to have a little bit of pull. So as the ball goes, it creates that sort of whip and the spin, and that's going to create more spin-induced uh, movement and it's going to create more break, et cetera, that all is going to be generated from basically having your fingers remain on contact with the ball longer than they would have without the sticky substance. I mean, that's ultimately what we're getting down to is, uh, is that same thing. I thought he said it really concisely as well. Yeah. And I think one way that people can wrap their head around this a little bit uh, more, even with that is, okay, well, well, how is that really going to help? Um, if you understand that, you know, breaking balls are going to have more spin or higher spin rates typically than a fastball. So the, the major league average fastballs in 2021 is uh, like 2260 something. Um, on a breaking ball, it's between 24 and 2500, whether it's curveball or slider. Um, essentially, the difference between those two pitches, fastballs and breaking balls, is you're looking at more of a vertical pull, right, with the fingers as opposed to more of that trajectory, like you're talking about that force behind the ball, propelling it toward home plate. Um, and what, what this allows um, pitchers to do is get the spins like a breaking ball on a fastball without sacrificing any forward, um, forward direction and momentum. So you're seeing um, that, that sharp spin of a breaking ball, let's say a curveball, that really sharp 12-6, now you're seeing it in reverse, and it's 95, 96, 97. And so uh, it's really gotten to pull that's unfair. We can get into more of the reasons why that creates different flight and stuff and how that tricks hitters. But 
that's uh, an easy way for me to wrap my head around it as well. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it because you hear a lot of talk about rise to a fastball, and I think it, it can be a confusing thing because, you know, the whole um, physics behind it, the baseball is not rising. Um, but the creating the perception that it is, I really like the way you said that, Kevin, that, you know, talking about a curveball, like the vertical down, it's just really, it allows that pitcher to create the opposite. Like you hear pull down a curveball, well, those fingers on there with that substance allows to create that opposite effect up. And I did uh, get some numbers here to share with listeners just to kind of um, from things seen in MLB that I found really interesting. Um, I don't know if you guys had saw that uh, from the time that the, the crackdown began, uh, that 27 out of 30 teams have seen a decrease in four-seam spin rate by around 100, uh, an average of 100 RPMs. So that's pretty amazing. Uh, we get to talk to a lot of players. Uh, we actually have a prior uh, MLB catcher in the office, uh, and, and he mentioned that uh, Seth alluded to it, but a lot of the hitters didn't have a gripe because they wanted guys to be able to control a hundred mile an hour fastball, not, you know, let it get up and in. Uh, but it's just kind of amazing to me that really, truly how many pitchers are really using something to get that spin rate up a little bit. Um, and it just goes unknown. Um, you know, Seth and I have seen things in spring training that we, you know, we always kind of stay away from and stuff, but it's, uh, it's just a known thing. And now seeing the crackdown, it's just really seeing the light of, you know, truly what all is going on. It's just been really interesting. Yeah, I think going into this, the perception among fans for the most part was that there's probably one or two players on every team that are doing something. Um, and maybe some teams are completely clean. And I think what I've been saying for over a year now is people need to understand, like, this is status quo. It's not the outlier. This, is, this isn't – you can't point at someone and say, you're cheating because you have a different advantage than these other pitchers. You could say pitchers are cheating – because they have an unfair advantage over hitters potentially, but you're not going to say that they're cheating because they have unfair advantages over other pitchers because there are fewer pitchers not using something than using something. And I think that's being conservative to say it that way. Um, I mean, I think the percentages are much less like 50, 50 and we're much more like 80, 20. Um, but that's, that's my opinion from what I've seen and what I've heard throughout clubhouses and things like that. But, yeah, I think that I think this is good for the pers- um, people understanding that that people that everyone is doing something. We're not just picking scapegoats here. Yeah, and true to form with everything, right? Like guys are going to make an adjustment. I understand the gripe though from a mid-year change uh, and and guys getting injured now because the ball's feeling a little bit different. And everything like I I don't know exactly where that plays out uh, and how it goes from a ball standpoint, but I do completely understand. And I mean, these guys are such fine-tuned athletes that they understand, you know, if the ball is a little bit wonky in any way, like the seam or an ounce off or whatever, these guys know so well. Now all of a sudden you're reducing their grip and how they're throwing it from one start to the next. I mean, that's a, I understand, you know, the the kind of cry and the outrage uh, a little bit from the player side of things. And, you know, if we're going to make a change, maybe we wait till the season's down to make a change in the offseason so I can train and prepare for it. I'll say, especially when you're when you're going to say MLB has been, um, you know, vocal in telling the teams not to change things and that they're not going to enforce it. It's one thing if you're not saying that and then you decide to really crack down. But when you're saying, "Hey, we're not enforcing it," and then you crack down, it's just a bad look. Um, but you know, I think people. It's easy to say, "Well, you shouldn't have been cheating in the first place," but it's a little more nuanced than that. It's like I said, it's not a, an unfair advantage over the majority of other pitchers but um you also do have um leave some of these guys at further risk of 
um, injury through some through a couple different methods that we could get or a couple different reasons we could get into. But um, I, I, I'd like to pass along to what you were going to say, Brian. Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, like now that spin rate is so closely looked at by all clubs and it's valued so high. Well, when like players and their peers are now spinning it, you know, upper 2000s, you know, as a player that maybe didn't use a substance, they may be thinking, and I better get a couple hundred RPMs on my ball or, you know, I might be falling behind too. So I'm curious, you know, how many players that went through college that, you know, maybe didn't use rosin or sunscreen or anything like that, or, you know, a spider tech type of substance, but see, Hey, I'm falling behind if I'm not using something to get, you know, plus 300 RPM possibly just because like you said, Kevin, there's guys sprinkled throughout the league that, you know, in each club, um, in just an easy way to get uh, some, some RPMs makes a lot of sense to, so that when clubs are, evaluating your spin rate and all of that like players know that's looked at more than ever mm-hmm. and, and, and it, to be fair it was it's not even it wasn't even a taboo topic in baseball it wasn't something like hey don't tell anybody but you should use this stuff it's like all right does everyone have their stuff like do you need us to buy it for you kind of stuff like it was just out in the open and the fact that people didn't see it and the fact that teams are acting like that they didn't know what was going on it's that's just nonsense Obviously, everybody was going on. It's just common practice. And so it's not even about like I have to cheat to get ahead or not fall behind. It's just it was just so common that it wasn't it wasn't even seen as a as a as a wrong uh, that anyone was doing at the time. Yeah, I love the text that started to come out of like, you know, hey, man, you got my stuff. You can pick it up. It's like nobody cared. I did. It wasn't like a meeting in the back alley. It was like I'm going to text this guy so he can. Make sure he brings it to the front office and then get delivered to my locker for me uh, afterwards. Like it was just out there and known. But it does make me think too, you know, when you talk about like player development, uh, that when you see kids and prospects, and we just had some absolute freaks that are out there that are spinning the ball naturally at 25, 26, 2700. I mean, that like, I can't even like consider that. It just seems so unfathomable. These dudes that are pro guys are using the substance to gain that, to get there. And we have these, you know, I think there's a, a guy that BP and I talked a lot about uh, on a podcast that we had one of our analysts come on and talk, uh, Carson Seymour, and he's sitting, you know, I think mid to upper 90s and his fastball is 25, 2600 plus. I mean, it's just like, that's what they are now. And, and it's kind of a, an, an insane thing to really comprehend that, like, that's who these young kids are competing against is mid to upper 90s with 2500 RPM. And, and some of the, yeah, and some of these guys that are, are natural freaks and can really spin it, they're going to really benefit uh, from this crackdown because now there's a lot less of those guys. There was a lot more of them. Now there's a lot less of them. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. That's kind of what I was getting at with like players realizing that they maybe should do something like that. Uh, exactly. Kevin, like you said, the guys that naturally can do it and yeah, going to benefit like crazy now that naturally can do the upper 2000s. Uh, I think we'll see them kind of. Um, you know, kind of go up the rankings in the MLB and, you know, and possibly, you know, still be able to go up successfully up in the zone without, you know. Yeah, it'll be rare. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a that's an interesting point, BP, that we haven't talked about. Look at the history of the league in the last few years. There's a lot less two-seam sinker ball guys. There's a lot more four-seam ride guys that are sitting up in the zone. If we don't have this and we don't have guys pumping 24, 25, 26, 2700 RPMs, that are going out there. Do we start to see a little bit more of a shift back to towards a two-seam action, a little bit more uh, arm set run and less vertical break? It'll be interesting to study that kind of year over year and, or even shoot in the middle of this year to see what that does uh, if guys make adjustments back that way. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we're already seeing just from the crackdown, uh, batting average going up as well. Um, like I, th- I think we had read in the in the article that, uh, you know, towards the beginning of June, it was the lowest it's ever been, like a 236. And just a few weeks after the crackdown, the the whole league batting average was up to like 243. Not the craziest drastic change, but just from and, and guy spin rates being down too. Like I mentioned, 27 of the 30 teams were seeing like 100 uh, on average, 100 RPMs less on their pitches. That's a really interesting point, Seth, that maybe guys will go back to what they did before on maybe creating a little more horizontal movement on the pitch to, to miss some barrels if they can't go up with that really high spin rate up in the zone. That's a really interesting topic to see uh, how those pitching profiles and movement matrix will change based on you know what they how they need to adjust. What will also be interesting on that is to see how, how proactive baseball is on trying to police slick substances, too. Because now yeah, double-edged sword, right? Can't go one way. Let's go another way, right? Like, yeah. So I, you know, I think I've been saying for a while now. I thought sinker ballers were going to start coming back. I don't think velocity's ever gone away, but I think um, sinker ballers will start coming back just because after a while, your your like if if this was great because the high spin at the top zone was great because it was above average, and that's all these hitters see now then it's going to slowly start to become average. And eventually the pendulum's going to have to swing. And I think this just like stopped the pendulum from swinging altogether and threw it right back to its sinkers. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see if MLB's proactive on the, on the slick substances on top of that, because that'll kill the spin and cause more sink, as y'all know. Yeah. Yeah, you think of like Dustin May, just looks like a freak when he throws. You're like, your mind's not even used to seeing this. Like, what, what is he doing? He's like a magician, but really it's just – you know, this 12 o'clock converted to 2.30, and now he's got this insane amount of run, and it's, and it's going for him. So it's, it's awesome. You mentioned outliers and, and guys killing RPMs. I got to bring it up. I mentioned Carson Seymour a second ago, but the reason that he popped for us, and, and I'm just curious, generally as a fan of baseball and pitching development, to ask you if you've ever seen anything like this. This dude has three pitches. I think he has a fourth of the change of the three kind of legit ones, and he's 2,500 mid to high 90s fastball, 25 to 2,600, 80, I think it's like 86 miles an hour slider. And then he throws an 84 mile per hour, 16 to 1,400 RPM curveball. <laughs> Have you ever seen a curveball that has over like a 1,000 RPM differential between his fastball uh, and his slider? Um, so, so it was over 1,000 between fastball and slider? Uh, over a thousand less. He had sixteen hundred oh, to fourteen hundred RPMs on his curveball, thrown at eighty-four. Oh no! So it was a low spin rate curveball that was also very efficient. So we're not talking about like a concrete mixer that somebody on the side of like the ball. 12-6. It was very high efficient. It was true topspin thrown hard. Yeah. Uh, like he couldn't even get up to upper eighties with it, but it was efficient topspin. Um, <laughs> so we, it was something we thought was pretty cool. Rap Soto, we dove yeah, in, the analytics guys grabbed it. Yeah. I'm- I'll, I'll go on record and say I've never seen anything like that. I thought you were going to start talking about the I think I kind of teamed out on you calling it a curveball. Yeah. Yeah, I've never even heard of it. Our analyst was like, this is a weird pitch. And we started dissecting. Yeah. I was like, that, that's not right. That's got to be there's something wrong. We look back at the reports, and there's like 1,400, 1,500, 1,600. Like, he's all peppers that zone. Uh, he got drafted actually like way above slot, so it was cool for our analysts. He kind of tagged that. Um, saying that he would, he was a you know an outlier down on the rough type guy, but it'll be interesting. I just want to watch that kid throw a bullpen, just like see what the hell's going on with that pitch. <laughs> interesting, yeah. yeah. 
We'll have to talk about who that is so I can look it up. And see what, see what's yeah, going yeah, Carson Seymour, Kansas State. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, we can maybe get him on podcast and he can break it down for us exactly what what happens when the ball comes out of his hand, or we'll send him an insight unit so we can all see for ourselves. Cool. Well, Kevin, man, I can't thank you enough. This has been a blast. Uh, I would love to get you back on and we can dive into a little bit more, you know, pitch design, player development, and uh, driven stuff. I think that'd be a, a really fun podcast to get you on too. Absolutely. I would love to.